for the, the gentlemen going to Waffle House this afternoon. Um, they are going to need our prayers um, all afternoon and into the night, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, I would prefer to be the Galentines. How about y'all? <laughs> They're having charcuterie. Come on. What y'all know about charcuterie? Okay. Yes, Lord. There's going to be a lot of charcuterie in the new creation. I'm just saying. And there won't be a single Waffle House. <laughs> oh, man. You guys want to hear a joke this morning? Here's a joke. My teaching today is going to be short. Okay? <sighs> Should I keep it going? I heard a story this past week uh, of a couple that had a pastor over for dinner and uh, had a great time. It was fantastic. And a, a few weeks go by and the couple realized that they uh, were missing a spoon. They couldn't find a certain spoon. And uh, if they kind of thought that maybe the, the pastor accidentally took it with them or something or whatever. Well, a few months go by. They have the pastor back over to the house for dinner, and uh, they get the courage to ask him. They said, uh, um, did, you, did you happen to uh, take our spoon when you were here the last time? He said, uh, no, I put it in your Bible. <laughs> Some of y'all didn't laugh because you convicted. That's what it is. Man, I laughed so hard when I heard that, but I don't know. That didn't really resonate this morning. <laughs> Woo, thank you, Lord God, for laughter. Oh, man. Jordan later is going to tell me, why do you laugh at your own jokes? I don't understand. Not very funny. Okay. Anyway, uh, this is our final week in this at-home teaching series that we have been in during the Epiphany Tide season. And we have been exploring and looking at what it means for all of us, for us as believers, us as followers of the way of Jesus, to live with God in the modern world. What it looks like, what it means for us to abide or to dwell or to be connected and attached to Jesus. All rooted in quite possibly the most important metaphor in all of John's gospel account, specifically in John 15, in what is referred to as the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse, the final words of Jesus with his disciples before going to the cross. We've also explored the essence of fruit bearing as it pertains to being connected to the vine. So I would encourage you all, if you've missed any of the teachings, to go back and listen to the first four weeks uh, because I think it helps provide clarity for our time today and I think it helps streamline the direction of the metaphor. And I hope that it is beneficial for you in your formation and in your transformation and in your journey with Jesus. I actually heard a lot of encouragement from the teaching last week, uh, specifically from folks who had never really heard a talk on a theology of joy and its centrality in love and in our connection to Jesus. And so I would actually encourage you to continue to press into the notion of joy as it pertains to not only interpersonal relationships, but also as it pertains to your discipleship with Jesus and your connection to the vine. Joy is so deeply important, not only neurologically in your brain, but in community as well. We gather together with things like the chili cook-off and all of these times together in house churches or at the Waffle House or doing charcuterie, whatever it is, 
because it's in those spaces we are able to enjoy one another. And when we enjoy each other, we form deeper attachments to one another. And we allow Jesus as the center of those attachments to change us and to mold us. So to that end, for today, um, I want to share with you all a really beautiful paradigm from Dallas Willard in his book, The Renovation of the Heart. Uh, Willard was a philosopher. You guys know I love Dallas Willard. He was a philosopher for decades at the University of Southern California, and he had a pretty impactful book that was written a few years ago called Renovation of the Heart. And in Renovation of the Heart, he provides an acronym to describe a model for change. How do we change? How are we formed as individuals, not just as followers of Jesus, but as human beings. How is it that we change? And he uses this acronym, VIM, V-I-M. Now, the V in this VIM acronym um, is vision. It's vision. That's the first V. But the notion of VIM is actually a derivative of Latin, meaning strength, energy, direction, or virtue. And let's be honest, all of us are in need of some sort of direction in our life, some sort of energy, some sort of virtue to shape us and mold us and change us, whether we know it consciously or not. But the V in this VIM acronym is vision. And what does this mean? This means that for us, we must have a clear understanding of where we are headed, why we are heading in that direction, and the purpose in it. Without it, without a vision, we have an either obscure or a distorted understanding of how to actually live. Vision is deeply important. We see in the Old Testament that without a vision, without clarity, people actually perish. So we need a clear vision in order to actually know how to live. So when we talk about abiding and living at home and looking at this metaphor in John 15, we have to know first and foremost, all of you, including myself, that the choice to abide is ours. The choice to abide is ours. Now, you may have to wrestle with some of the questions that were posed last week in regards to joy and enjoying God and understanding or knowing or trusting that God actually enjoys you. You may have to wrestle with these questions, but at the end of the day, all of you, every one of you, the choice is yours. You have to choose to abide or you choose not to. You have to ask the question, am I even willing to surrender and trust Jesus? Am I even willing to trust Jesus? If Jesus is who he says he is, am I willing to abide, to trust, to be totally dependent on him? The dominant imperative of the disciple of the student of Jesus, as presented in all of John's gospel, is to believe and abide. That, those two imperatives are the dominant imperatives in John's gospel account. To believe or to trust, to trust in, and to abide. The two imperatives. Those are the two calls for the disciple, for all of us. And the very foundation of the call to abide is to trust. If you don't trust, you won't abide. The basic framework for abiding begins with trust. And if we have a distorted vision of who Jesus of Nazareth is, 
and what he came to do, it will utterly distort and obscure what it means for you and I to abide. Out of our vision of Jesus flows everything else. Out of our vision of Jesus flows everything else. If I were to ask you, who is Jesus? Which, by the way, we can agree, he's the most polarizing figure in the history of humanity. Who is he? Out of that understanding flows everything else. A.W. Tozer says this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which you need to get you some Tozer. Let me just tell you right now. You need to go, go ahead, write it down. A-W, made it easy for you. A-W, Tozer, T-O-Z-E-R. Write it down and go ahead and get on Amazon and order you some A-W Tozer, okay? Pursuit of God or knowledge of the Holy, either one. It's great stuff. Here's what he says when it comes to this notion of our vision of Jesus and our vision of God. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. Whatever comes to your mind when you think of God, let alone when you think about Jesus, is the most important thing about you as a human being and as a person. Your ethics flow out of that. Your vision of the good life flows out of that. Your understanding of what it means to be a neighbor, to love others. Motivations, intentions, living. Everything flows out of that. So without a proper theology of the nature of God, you and I will not ever have a secure attachment to God. If you have a distorted theology of who God is, then you never will have a secure, abiding attachment to God. Now, we have talked a bit earlier in the teaching series when we were unpacking John 15 about attachment theory. I think attachment theory is very interesting when it comes to primarily interpersonal relationships, but I think it's even more fascinating how it plays out in our vertical relationship with the Father. The basic description of abiding in God is attachment to God. When we talk about abiding or living with or connected to God, we are essentially talking about attaching or binding ourselves to God. And your theology, my theology, is key in our attachment to God. And if Tozer's, what he says is even remotely true at all, then our vision of God, our understanding of God and his nature, and our understanding of who Jesus is, determines our attachment. Now, There are, as some of you may or may not know, and I am not a psychologist by any means. I dabble. That's it. I dabble. But there are four types of attachments that we have in relationships based on the work from John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. You can go back and look at it. Four primary attachments. And I think this actually helps us in our understanding of how we do or don't attach to God. The attachment that we are going for, and John 15 lays out for us, is a loving, joyful attachment. We talked last week about joy being made full in us, remaining in his love. Now, in psychology, this is just called a secure attachment. Secure attachment. This is the aim for all of us. Although this isn't all of us. This is the aim and the hope. The second attachment that's really opposite of secure attachment is what's referred to as a fearful or fearful avoidant attachment. Fearful avoidant. The third is what's called a dismissive avoidant attachment. 
And the fourth is called an anxious preoccupied attachment. Now, in each of these attachments, and I think all of us fit into one of these based on, honestly, the relationship with our parents from birth, helps us in our vision of Jesus, our vision of who he is. If we have a secure, loving, joyful attachment to Jesus, we are essentially living into the vision that Jesus is trustworthy, that he is worthy, that he is worthy of my trust. I trust in him. If we have a fearful or avoidant attachment when it comes to God, our primary vision is that Jesus is angry at me. Jesus is angry at me. If your vision of Jesus is that he just simply doesn't matter at all, Jesus has no bearing on your life. Jesus, sure, yeah, he's cool, whatever, but Jesus doesn't change my life here now in 2023. Then this would be a dismissive avoidant attachment. You're dismissing the reality of who Jesus is and just saying, he doesn't matter. He doesn't matter to me at all. The fourth, and one of the dangerous ones, I think, for us in terms of our vision of Jesus, when we talk about an anxious or preoccupied attachment, the vision of Jesus is that Jesus is my drug. Jesus is my drug. I go to Jesus when I need him. Jesus kind of serves me whenever I'm struggling. But Jesus isn't really my master or my teacher or Lord. But he's like a drug or a hit of dopamine. And so when we think about our vision of Jesus, all of us have some vision, and that vision is going to dictate, I believe, your attachment to him and how you abide. And our aim and our goal at Emmaus in our community and today is to have a clear vision of who Jesus actually is and what he is asking. In order that when we do trust in him and we attach ourselves to him, it is secure. It's secure. So we have to have a clear vision. We have to have clarity when it comes to who Jesus is and what he came to do. The second aspect of Dallas Willard's them model is intention. Intention. In this room right now, and I believe across the church at large, there are at least two groups of people. Those who intend to attach themselves to Jesus and live from the vine, but never actually make the choice to. Some of you in this room right now, you have all the intentions to attach yourself to the vine and to abide but you never actually decide to. You never actually choose to. It's one of those things where I'll get to it one day. I intend to down the road, but not right now. I'm not choosing to. And our intentions, family, only matter if there is a decision that follows. Intentions cannot change you. They're a starting point, but what we have to realize is that we have to make decisions about our change, and our decision to abide is ours. We don't merely intend to abide as though it's just going to happen passively. We have to choose it. We have to decide on our own. The second group are individuals who... Quite honestly, you have no intention to abide. You're here today, and I'm glad. Welcome. Hope you feel at home. But you have no intention to abide. None. Maybe you're kind of curious, or maybe there's a friend here that you enjoy and you like their presence, and you're like, well, I'll come hang out with them for a little bit for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Got nothing else to do. But you have no intention to abide in your daily life. And here's the challenge. A lot of us probably are unaware of which group we are a part of. But my hope 
is that we become a people who, by being entrenched in the presence of God, him wooing us and drawing us, when we lift him up, he draws us that our curiosity moves to intention and our intention moves to decision and we choose to abide. That is my desire for all of us. But I recognize that some of you in this space today have no intention to abide at all. And maybe it's because of an unclear picture of God or maybe because a lack of surrender or maybe because you're just merely distracted and you think that you've got it all figured out on your own. Things are going pretty good in your life. I don't really need Jesus. He's great. He's cool. But I don't need to abide. I want you to wrestle with those two characterizations. And they're characterizations. I get it. But do you intend to abide? Number one. And are you deciding to abide? Choosing to abide? Because some of us, at our heart level today, right now, coming into this space, at the center of our being, our core form, that which directs our life, you're not sure if you actually intend to know Jesus or not, for whatever reason. Maybe because of the vision you have of him, or maybe because he asks too much of you and you don't trust him with your life. St. Ignatius of Loyola defines sin as essentially our unwillingness to trust God with our own happiness. If you don't trust that Jesus can produce ultimate joy and happiness in your life and aren't willing to, willing to surrender to him in that, which, by the way, majority of abiding is nothing but surrender, then you will not experience secure attachment. And I want all of you to, friends, but not all of you do. But I'm believing, I'm believing today, as God's been speaking to me through the week, that some of you will make a new decision today, a renewed covenantal decision to abide in the vine. Even if you don't have all of it figured out, which you can't, your finite mind can't. And the more you know God, the less you will know about God. The more he becomes mysterious to you. He's not fathomable. You have to trust. I'm not advocating for blind faith. I'm, I'm fine with evidence and the pursuit of knowledge and rationalizing. But at some point, you have to trust in Jesus. You have to trust in the evidence. And if Jesus didn't do enough to prove his trust to you, I don't know what other person honestly can. And that's a miserable place to be in. Because all of us are in pursuit of a Messiah. This is why we've turned to politics in the U.S. to try and usher in utopia. We want a Messiah. We want a Messiah. But we don't have a clear picture of what is good. And we see in Jesus the person who offered himself for us when we didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it. But simply him being motivated in love, he stepped down off of the throne and entered into a freaking stable because he loves you. Now, you can live in denial of reality, but that promotes neuroses, and psychosis. Do you today intend to abide in the vine? And if you do intend, have you decided to remain? Also, if you're new, welcome to church. It's good to have you today. <laughs> so glad you're here. Yes. Pretty soon I'll give you three tips to a better life. I'm kidding. To be honest, you're probably never going to get that from me. I'm just being totally transparent. As we have been in the series together over the last few weeks, 
there's one verse that continues to come up in connection to John 15, and I continue to go back to, and it's Psalm 27, 4. Psalm 27, 4. So go ahead and jump there right now in your Bible, in your phone, whatever device you have. But if you don't have a printed copy of the scriptures, I want to personally give you one. Personally. Psalm 27, 4. Here we go. This is what David has to say as we are thinking about abiding. David. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to read off the screen. Are you guys there? Here's some pages still turning. Okay. Here's David. The one thing that I ask of the Lord, which let's just stop and notice that David's asking. This man is asking. Okay? Every single translation of this verse ESV, NASB, KJV, NIV, NLT, has the word ask in it. Every one of them. And for some of us in this room today, there are literally just three letters between you and the presence of God. A-S-K. For some of you, quite literally, what separates you from the presence of God are three Letters, A-S-K. David says, there is one thing I ask of the Lord. Of all the things he could ask for, there is one thing that I ask. And there is one thing that I seek the most, which shows us David's intention. We see his intention. He's got a vision of the Lord. But now we see his intention. He says, the one thing that I seek, that I'm going after, that I'm in pursuit of, it's not a degree, it's not a relationship, it's not wealth. It is actually to dwell or to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The one thing I seek and the one thing that I'm asking. Not just some days in the house of the Lord. Not just in some seasons all the days of my life. All of the days of my life. When you're 70, 80, 90 years old, if you're lucky, you're dwelling in the house of the Lord. Enjoying the presence of God. This is the one thing that David seeks. The one thing that he wants. To live in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Abiding, friends and family, is a way of living and being to where it becomes almost as natural as breathing. And as we have said in this teaching series, visiting the Lord is not the same as living with the Lord all the days of your life. You've got to retrain your mind in terms of thinking about intimacy with God. We're not just visiting God. We're not just spending a week with him in the summer. We are living with God all of the days of our life. Vast difference between visiting and living in And some of us, if we're honest, our intimacy with God, our abiding, is actually more like visiting. But the call is to live with and live in the house of the Lord. Now, a monk in the 17th century, by the name of Brother Lawrence, called this idea the practice of the presence of God. Has anyone read the practice of the presence of God? Is anyone familiar with the practice of the presence of God? The two or three people that raised their hand have been radically changed. I promise. If I'm lying, you can talk to me afterwards. I got the chance to read Practicing the Presence of God early in my formation, and it utterly wrecked me. Wrecked me. 
Brother Lawrence, his, his biological name was Nicholas Herman, was a lay Carmelite monk in Europe. What a vocation. I'm talking about serious 401k health benefits and unlimited PTO. Be a Carmelite monk, right? Like, what a vocation. All he did was work in the kitchen and wash dishes. That's all he did. And after his death, folks found his journals. And his journals ended up becoming published under the name Practice of the Presence of God. And this book, this, this set of writing from Brother Lawrence, again, absolutely changed my life. So you got some resources today. Write down Tozer, write down Brother Lawrence, okay? This was a Carmelite nun who literally saw washing the dishes with the Lord just as essential as rhythms of prayer. He literally talks about picking up straw off the ground in love to the Lord. Practicing the presence of God. Not compartmentalizing the presence of God. It's all of his life. Here's what he has to say. He says, think often on God by day, by night, in your business and even in your diversions. He is always near you and with you. Leave him not alone. He goes on to say that prayer, for those of us who struggle with prayer, and let's be honest, prayer is intimate relational communication, and it's hard. Prayer is easy. Ronald Rollheiser talks about how prayer is easy in the beginning of your intimacy with God and at the very end. The rest of your life, it's hard. It's challenging. But here is what he says prayer is. Prayer is nothing else than a sense of God's presence. You struggle with prayer? Here you are, sensing God's presence, abiding, or being present to the Lord is a portal to his presence. It is a portal into his presence. And there's a specific group of people in our community that I think need to hear this. Stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads. You want to know a hard vocation? Stay at home with some children. And the mother's eyes at about 4.30 look like this. It's hard. To be honest, I actually think the hardest season to follow Jesus is when you first have little children. It's hard. But, as I have been reading and thinking, there is no other closer picture of a modern-day monastic than a stay-at-home mom or dad. You're essentially in isolation. You're in the wilderness. Time is not your own. You are serving someone who, guess what, probably is not going to serve you back. There is no HR department that you can call and whistleblow or complain about your children. It is lonely, and you are giving of yourself 100% of the time. And most stay-at-home moms and dads I've talked to struggle with the notion of intimacy with Jesus. Why? Because their vision of abiding is distorted. But it is in that space that I think you are stripped and formed in ways that all of us who aren't in that position really don't know what it's like. So I want to encourage you today. You are in the crucible of the wilderness. When you are wiping that baby's little rear end in love, do it as to the Lord. When you are feeding your little ones and they're throwing food, Sailor's in a throwing food phase. You're learning patience. When you're playing with your children, you're building a bond and showing joy. Abiding in the vine is about practicing the presence of God all the days of our life. And not just all the days of our life, but all day long. Drawing our mind to the Lord. David goes on talking about how he is going to dwell or what he is going to do in the house of the Lord. And he says this, 
you know, I, I, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's his desire, his intention. He goes on, delighting in the Lord's perfection and meditating in his temple. Again, the notion of delighting is enjoying the Lord's presence. Another translation says, beholding the beauty of the Lord. Which, this is a glimpse into our teaching series that starts next week, which, by the way, Vania is going to teach next week, launching us into a series on beauty and glory and its necessity in our formation. Hello. Come on. I'm excited. And this gives us a glimpse because David is simply beholding the beauty of the Lord. He is delighting or enjoying in the Lord's perfections or his completeness. And he's meditating in his temple. This is what he wants to do. This is how he's going to live in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Now, looking at this psalm and with respect to the human person, if we intend to abide and we choose to abide, given that we enjoy or delight in God, delighting in us, which he does, the question remains, where does abiding begin? How? You're like, okay, Spencer, it sounds cool. It's a little mystical. Uh, not sure about pragmatics. How do we do this? Love the metaphor, man. It's great. I get it. Vineyard, grapes, you know, attachment. Cool. But how? This is the question. And this is the, the question I think a lot of us are struggling with. Three letters, A-S-K, struggle, and H-O-W, struggle. Okay? So I want us to have an awareness today of how to abide. All right. Here it is for you. Okay, abiding, dwelling, remaining, connecting, attaching, and living at home with Jesus begins with our attention. Not deep, not profound, but it begins with our attention. It begins with our mind and our thoughts. David in this psalm is giving his full attention to God. His mind is on God. And this is both qualitative and quantitative. And I hear some of us talk about, well, in my time with the Lord, I want quality over quantity. And I get that. That's beautiful. But here's the deal. Oftentimes, quality comes after quantity. I didn't marry my wife by just saying hello to her every once in a while in the hallway. It took quantity, time. Your friendships, your relationships with those you are close to was not just a passing, hello, how's it going? Man, we are deep. That's my ride or die. We've said 10 words to each other in the last three weeks. But we're all about quality, not quantity. No, it's both. Quantity and quality. But it is all of life. The people that you and I love, that we love, we tend to think about them often. Do we not? The people that we love are people that come into our mind often. Even when we speak of the notion of dwelling on the past, which is negative, it's associated with the mind our thoughts, where our mind is. It is in respect to the mind and to attention. Abiding in the vine, remaining, living with Jesus begins with our attention, with our thoughts, which God has endowed an agency and freedom in you to be able to direct your thoughts in certain directions. Just read about neuroplasticity. You can direct your thoughts, and it begins, in terms of abiding, right there. Here's what Willard has to say about the mind. He says, to bring the mind to dwell intelligently upon God as he is presented in his word will have the effect of causing us to, check this out, love God passionately. And this love will in turn bring us to think of God steadily. Thus, he will always be before our minds. As Thomas Watson beautifully wrote long ago, the first fruit of love is the musing of the mind upon God. He who is in love, his thoughts are ever upon the object. If you're like, I just feel so disconnected from the vine. I'm curious, what has your attention? I just would want to know. 
Where is your mind going constantly? Our mind goes towards objects that we care about or we are vested in or people that we love. And I'm pretty sure this is one of the reasons why daycares have cameras. I sometimes, when, when I'm just thinking about Selah, and I'm with Jordan, Jordan's even worse than me, so I'm just saying. Jordan, she thinks about Selah, and we're on that little app and watching what she's doing at, you know, 1230, middle of the day. Why? Because we're thinking about her. No joke, sometimes Jordan and I will just sit there for 10 minutes and watch the girl eat some cheese puffs. <laughs> Not even kidding. Why? Because we're thinking about our little girl. Our attention goes there. Our mind goes there. To be present, friends, is to give someone our attention. And our thoughts direct our attention. So if abiding means willingly giving our attention to God at any moment, for short periods or for long periods, then to be disconnected from God is actually not to disown him, but rather to disregard him. Going about our life as though he isn't even there. That is the antithesis of abiding. It's disregarding. It's not disowning. It's disregarding. Acting as though God isn't even present. Our greatest temptation is to be close to God in proximity, but disregard his presence. Close in physical proximity, but disregarding his presence. And all of you know what I'm talking about. You've been in a room with someone before, and you're totally unaware that they are actually in the room. Or they're unaware that you are in the room. You're talking to them, and they have AirPods in their ears. And you're just talking and talking. And pretty soon you realize, oh, you didn't hear a word that I said. But you're literally 10 feet in front of me. Physical proximity is not so much the goal as it is our present attention on God. If you were to ask me to do something, and Jordan can attest to this, if you don't look me in the eye, there's a good chance I'm probably not going to do it. Because I wasn't present. I heard, but I didn't listen. This is the great temptation in any relationship to be physically present, but emotionally and mentally distant. This is the great temptation for every relationship where you can be in the same house with another person and never actually be present. So if you desire to abide, we're still asking this great question of how. How do I live in such a way where I dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life? These are the questions that we are asking. And keep this in mind, just a little, little nerd out real quick, bear with me. When Jesus says, abide in me in John 15, or remain in me, it is in the aorist active tense, which means a past action without reference to duration or completion. Meaning that the imperative of the command of Jesus saying, abide in me, remain in me, is essentially him saying, keep living with me as you have and never move out. We don't abide on Monday and then Tuesday we're doing our own thing. No, no, he's saying, you've been abiding, you've been living with me, you've been hanging out with me, keep it up and don't ever move out. Don't ever move out. So, this is the notion. How do we live a life of abiding? We, first off, need an awareness of how we best connect with God intentionally. How do you and how do I connect with God intentionally? How has he wired you? Because we aren't all the same. Praise God. We're not all the same. Our way of connecting with God is unique. But just as we have unique personalities, we also have different temperaments when it comes to connection and relation to God, all of us. There is no cookie-cutter way of connecting with God. And in his book, Sacred Pathways, Gary Thomas walks through nine pathways of connecting with God that I think is super practical and helpful. 
So we go from theoretical abiding, attachment theory, all the fun stuff, to now let's talk about practical application. Nine pathways or nine temperaments of connecting with God. Here they are. And I want you to identify which one most resonates with you. And hopefully that's going to liberate you in your intimacy with Jesus and your decision and choice to abide, okay? The first are what Gary Thomas calls the naturalist. You are individuals who enjoy connecting with God outdoors. I mentioned before that our Catholic friends refer to nature as God's second sacred book. God spoke creation into existence. You connect with God outdoors. The second group are individuals who are senses-centered. You are probably pretty creative. You're artistic. You connect with God through music. You're the person that always has music going. You love worship music. You love to eat. You love beauty. You want your senses to be touched by God. The third is what he calls the traditionalist. You love routine. You love liturgy and written prayer. The fourth person is what Thomas refers to as the activist, where you feel most alive and connected with God when you are confronting injustice. You are God's confrontational workers. This type of person traditionally loves not just justice in a relational sense, because there's all different ways of defining justice, but specifically in a political justice sense. This is when you feel alive and connected to God. The next person he refers to as the ascetic which I know is a word that none of us use in our daily vocabulary. But the ascetic is someone who loves silence and solitude. You are honestly like, let me just get alone with God and my moleskin in the woods. Like, can we please be quiet? Like loud worship services, you honestly abhor. You don't like them at all. Loud music, high energy, you're like, no, 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 no. I want silence and solitude. Okay, then you have the caregiver. You really connect with God and love God by loving others. Then he has what he refers to as the enthusiast. These are individuals who love gathering together, love group celebration, love the mystery of God. Like, God, what are you going to ask me to do today? Yes, I'm an enthusiast. This is how I connect with God. And then he goes on to talk about the contemplative person. This is a person who just wants to adore God. There's a sense of adoration and almost a sense of romance with God. Your heart is pulled. You love to feel God's presence. And then the last temperament is what he refers to as the intellectual. You love God with the mind. You love to read deep theological works. You love to wrestle with the mystery of God. You love reading dead people. People that have been dead for a long time. It energizes you. You don't like shallow teaching. You want some depth and some meat. You want to be gripped and sanctified in the mind. Nine temperaments, and all of us have a leaning in one or two of these. Okay? In terms of how we relate to God in particular. But we still need a practical how-to when it comes to abiding. This just opens a door for us. These are like food groups that we just like enjoy. We're leaning into one of these nine, one or two of these nine. Because it doesn't mean that we're not going to connect with God in all of these different ways. It just helps us have an awareness of how we connect with God most. And some struggle to abide because we haven't been exposed to different ways that we can. We haven't been exposed to different ways that we can actually abide. Each of these nine temperaments are a bit like homes, different style homes. But every home, keep this in mind, still requires certain spaces and furnishings despite the aesthetic. All of us like certain types of homes, so to speak, or have a temperament in terms of connecting with God, but there are still certain rooms and spaces and furnishings that are required in every home, no matter the architecture or no matter the aesthetic of the home. Now, some people just want to live with God only in the yard working. But you never want to be in the kitchen. Some people only want to connect with God by laying in the bed at rest, but never in the yard working. Some just want to connect with God only on the couch, but never want to go into the bathroom. We need all of these spaces, no matter our temperament. This brings us to the third word in the acronym 
V-I-M in Willard's model, and that is the word means. Each space in our abiding is what Dallas Willard refers to as means. In other words, practices and spaces that God has given us and we see practiced in Jesus's life to connect with him, to live with him, to become like him. The furnishings in the rooms of the home that you might say. These are means. These are disciplines or rhythms provided by Jesus as a means of grace or as a gift enabling us to not only live with him, but to also bear much fruit, to produce much fruit. And if we use the vineyard metaphor, as in John 15, we have to realize in order for vines to grow most effectively and produce fruit, a support structure is put in place by the gardener called a trellis. You've heard us talk about this in the past, but I'm going over it once again to refresh us. This trellis is a means of grace provided by our Father who is the gardener. Ancients used this image of a trellis in connection to John 15 by developing what later was called a few hundred years after Jesus, a rule of life. A rule of life. The Latin for rule is the same word that is used for the word trellis. It's the word regula. Regula can mean rule or trellis. So in essence, this idea of a rule of life or this structure, this means of grace could be a trellis of life. A few different definitions for a rule of life. And again, some of you have heard this, but I'm coming back to it because it's important for all of us. Pete Scazzaro in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality defines a rule of life this way. It is a trellis that helps us abide in Christ and become more fruitfully or fruitful spiritually. It is an intentional conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything that we do. Ken Shigematsu says this about a rule of life. He says, a rule of life is simply a rhythm of practices that empowers us to live well and grow more like Jesus by helping us experience God in everything. And then I was texting John Mark Comer just last night, and he sent me this definition of a rule of life, where he says that it's a schedule and set of practices and relational rhythms that help us create space in our busy world for us to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. One more for good measure. Rich Velotis says that a rule of life is a simple structure that helps us pay attention to Jesus in everything that we do. Why does this matter? Why does this even matter? Because, as Annie Dillard says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. One day you're going to grow old, and you're going to look back, and you will have become a certain type of person. And I want all of us at Emmaus to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives. And for us at Emmaus, we call this our rhythm of life. Our rhythm of life. It helps us orient us in a specific direction, because this is what a trellis does. It helps orient the vine in a direction toward abiding in Jesus and bearing the fruit of Jesus. A bit like a budget. It helps provide for us a guide, so to speak, of where we are. The five rhythms are grace in our community. And the five rhythms for us are Praying, resting, learning, gathering, and contributing. Our hope is that all of us are practicing these five rhythms in our life. And ideally, these would be embedded throughout our daily, weekly, monthly, and even annual calendar. These are just spaces that are created to be with Jesus and become like Jesus. Praying, resting, learning, the word, the logos, the graphe, the rhema being in the Bible, the scriptures, learning about Jesus, gathering, eating together, celebrating around our table at home, our table here every single Sunday morning, as well as in our house churches. We gather together, we celebrate, we enjoy one another, as well as contributing, using our time, talent, and treasure to further what God is doing in this community and in the world around us. We are called to be co-laborers with Christ Jesus to work alongside of him as contributors. 
These are intentional practices for us. And our hope is that they would engage all the various dimensions of your person. Your heart, your mind, your body, your relationships, and assist in your soul's integration of all of them. So, when we talk about how do we abide, how do we live with Jesus? Anderson, you can come on up as we begin to close. Which I do mean close, I promise, okay? Some of you got to get to the Waffle House, all right? These are five spaces that are necessary for us to abide. And there's obviously overlap in all of them, but there's five nonetheless. The furnishings of your home may be unique and specific. In other words, the way in which you pray might look different from other people. You might like to pray out loud on your face for, for hours on end. Some of you might like silence in the woods. Some of you might like to practice Lectio Divina. Our call to Sabbath and rest is something that I want all of us to practice, but sometimes our schedules just don't allow with work. But how can we create time to stop and to rest and to delight in the Lord? Learning the scriptures. For some of us, opening the scriptures is so challenging, so hard. Maybe we watch the Bible project and let that illuminate our mind when it comes to who God is. Or maybe we just read a section at a time, or we do the lectionary, or maybe we do a book of the Bible and study. When it comes to gathering, we meet here on Sunday mornings. We eat around the table with friends. Maybe we set a rhythm for eating at, a tab- at the table in our home or out at a restaurant somewhere. And contribution, ways that we are giving of ourselves, serving in this community, serving in our city, giving of our resources, financial resources, as well as our time, contributing to what God is doing, furthering and multiplying the fruit. But... If we don't focus our attention on Jesus, we will never be with Jesus. Ever. And in the Emmaus story, in Luke chapter 24, the disciples, the downtrodden, doubtful disciples, beg Jesus to abide with them. And he goes into a home that night, and what is the first thing that he does? He eats with them. They beg him to abide. Don't go anywhere, they say. Stay with us tonight. Abide. Come in the home. And in the text, it says he goes into the home. And I want us to think about that imagery today. Of Jesus entering into our home and us entering into the home of Jesus simultaneously. And eating with him. This is when the disciples on the Emmaus Road realized who had their attention during the whole journey. Their eyes had been closed, walking beside this man, explaining all the prophets and the law and how it's connected to him. And they break bread, they eat together, and their eyes are opened. And they realize where their attention was. The place that we always come back to, friends, in order to reorient our attention is the bread and the cup. It has been for two millennia. Basic elements with transcendent power. Jesus is very clear in regards to this in John chapter 6, verse 56, and it actually frustrated a lot of people and they left him. They left him. Disowned him. Rejected him. Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives at home in me and I in them. Some of us today and some of us throughout this teaching series, we need to trust Jesus is who he said he was. You need your eyes opened at the table. You need your eyes and heart awakened at the breaking of bread. That's you. Because right now, you have no intention to abide. In fact, you are even probably frustrated at the notion of me bringing that up. But some of us need to decide to abide today. You need to stop renting a room from Jesus. And you need to move in. You need to move in. You need to attach. You need that clear vision of who he is. He's loving. He is is the most joyful being in the face of the earth. He invites us. He wants to 
to love us, care for us, change us, yes, mold us, yes, because he's good. And we can trust him with everything. We can trust him with our deepest longings and happiness. But some of you need to decide to abide today. And some of you, you need to embrace this rhythm of life and bring order into your chaotic life. For some of you, the only time you have to stop each week, and honestly, one of the reasons why we extend our gathering a bit on Sunday mornings is because this is the only time where you can stop. This is the only time you can be present. Because as soon as you walk out these doors, you are on it. Your mind's already thinking about tomorrow, and you need to embrace the rhythm of life in your chaotic, disordered life. I need one. I have had to use Google Calendar so much in my intimacy with Jesus. And in it, there are all of these practices. And they're not the end goal. They're the means to an end. It's just a schedule. It's not rigid. It liberates me to actually be with Jesus. There's flexibility. But I want all of us at the end of the day to have our attention drawn to Jesus. And our hearts awakened. To be people who connect with God that our deepest desire and the one thing that we seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever because if we're honest that's not all of us today so I'm going to have you bow your heads I'm going to have those who are ministering the elements to come forward